Should diaspora Jews opine about Israel's political decisions? Welcome to the Transformative Duff. My name is Rabbi Daniel Friedman. Today we are on page 47 of Tractate Nadarim, and we learned that Israel belongs to Jews everywhere, and the synagogues should be owned by the members. Welcome to the Transformative Duff, and thank you for being my Chavrissa today. I like to begin with the story. It was time to lay the groundwork for the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. The prophet God appeared to David and said to him, Go and set up an altar to Hashem on the threshing floor of Aravna the Jebusite. King David went up, following God's instructions as Hashem had commanded. Aravna looked out and saw the king and his courtiers approaching him. He stepped outside and bowed low to the king with his face to the ground and asked, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David replied, To buy the threshing floor from you, that I may build an altar to Hashem. Aravna said to David, Let my lord the king take it and offer up whatever he sees fit. Here are oxen for a burnt offering, and the threshing boards, and the gear of the oxen for wood. All this, O king, Aravna gives to your majesty, and may Hashem your God respond to you with favor. But the king replied to Aravna, No, I will buy them from you at a price. I cannot sacrifice to Hashem my God burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to Hashem and sacrificed burnt offerings and offerings of well-being, thereby establishing the place as the location of the future base Hamikdash that his son Shlomo would build. Today's stuff discusses two people who swore not to derive benefit from one another. Clearly, that means that they may not walk through each other's yards. But what are the ramifications for public property? May they cross a bridge or use a national park? Or are all citizens considered joint owners of public property, thus making it problematic? Says the Gemara, If someone says to another, I am hereby forbidden to you, then the one prohibited by the vow is prohibited from benefiting from the possessions of the one who took the vow. If someone says you are hereby forbidden to me, then the one who took the vow is prohibited from benefiting from the possessions of the other. If he says, I am hereby forbidden to you, and you are hereby forbidden to me, both are prohibited from benefiting from the possessions of the other. But it is permitted for both to benefit from the objects belonging to those who ascended from Babylonia. But it is prohibited for them to benefit from objects of that city. And what are examples of objects belonging to those who ascended from Babylonia? For example, the temple mount and the temple courtyards and the water cistern in the middle of the road. And what are objects of that city, for example, the city square and the bathhouse and the synagogue and the synagogue ark and the Torah scrolls? Explains the Ran, they are forbidden to use property of that city in which they live because residents of other cities have no share in their ownership. For the city council could sell these items on behalf of the local residents and they are therefore like partners who have prohibited one another's property. Let's analyze the Gemara. Thus, if two people swore of deriving benefit from one another, the ramifications concerning public property depend on what kind of property we're talking about. They may benefit from nationally owned property, such as the Holy Temple. When King David purchased the property, he did so on behalf of the entire nation. But they may not benefit from communally owned property, such as shuls. This piece of Gemara speaks to two contemporary debates regarding the Israel diaspora relationship. First, when Israel makes a political decision, do Jews in the diaspora have the right to an opinion? Second, should synagogues in Israel be state-owned or adopt the diaspora membership-driven model? The term the Gemara uses to refer to nationally-owned property is 
property belonging to Babylonian immigrants. Nevertheless, the Rambam explains that the term includes all Jews everywhere. Presumably, he concludes that this must be the definition because if we're only talking about a subset of the Jewish people who own the property, then we revert to the problem of partners who have prohibited each other's property. The practical implication is that Israel's national institutions would thus be the property of Jews across the globe. If that's the case, then indeed Jews everywhere should both feel responsible for Israel's national institutions and feel free to express their political opinions regarding Israel's affairs. Of course, this approach needs to be handled judiciously. There's no shortage of anti-Semites looking for any opportunity to denigrate Israel. And if we're critical of the Israeli government, it only gives them ammunition in their war against the Jewish state. Menachem Begin is often quoted as saying, Whenever I'm traveling abroad, I'm very careful not to say anything disparaging about my country. When I get home, I always have a lot of catching up to do. Others attribute the statement to Winston Churchill, but the point remains the same. Let's discuss the second aspect of communal ownership discussed in the Mishnah. Our sages teach that shuls in Israel are considered to be jointly owned by the members. Now, that's not the current arrangement of synagogue life in the state of Israel. Most shuls are state-owned, and the rabbis are appointed by the national rabbinate to oversee local municipalities. But there's a certain vibrancy experienced by member-driven shuls in the diaspora that's often absent in the state-owned and operated shuls of Israel. The rabbi there rarely knows the shul attendees personally, and there's no deep relationships between anyone in the shul. That's not how shuls should be, according to the Mishnah. Attendees should feel like partners in the ownership of the shul. That creates a whole different dynamic. When the members feel like they own the shul, they're invested in its success. They volunteer for programs, they fundraise, they encourage others to attend, and ultimately everyone wins. For centuries, Jewish life has thrived on the foundations of this democratic bottom-up model. Synagogues should always be in the hands of the members. Rabbis should be appointed by the people. The more people that are able to choose their shul and their rabbi, and the more shuls and rabbis that had to compete for members, the more religious life would be booming in every city, town, and yeshuv in Israel. May we merit flourishing, vibrant Jewish communities driven by the adage, the competition of sages increases wisdom, wishing you a transformative day. Thank you for tuning into the Transformative Duff Podcast with Rabbi Daniel Friedman. Whether you've been doing Duff Yomi for years or you're not quite ready to commit but want to be part of the Duff Yomi global movement, there's something in the Transformative Duff for everyone. It's about joining the conversation. It's about talking over the Duff with your family, your friends, your colleagues. It means never being short of a discussion starter or a meaningful Dvar Torah. Every page of the Gemara, every word, every letter contains the secrets of the universe to achieving a life of simcha and purpose. Transform your life today. The Transformative Daf is published by Mosaica Press and available at all good Jewish bookstores and online from mosaicapress.com. Thank you, The Transformative Daf.